0: It is a false gospel from hell.
1: Allie Beth Stuckey was 27 when she made the following video. She makes a living as a conservative commentator and has in the past worked as a CrossFit instructor, loan officer, and has even appeared on Fox News. While she majored in communications, she is somewhat of an amateur theologian. And of course, (laughs) she has a book on the way. No matter what you might say about Ali, you cannot deny that she has a passionate point of view. Let's have a look.
0: Today, we are going to talk about the prosperity gospel. Um, let me just be really clear. The prosperity gospel isn't just an imperfect gospel. It's not just an incomplete gospel. It's not just a decontextualized gospel. It is a false gospel from hell. It is from Satan. And if you believe it, you will not find Christ.
1: I love this. It is not decontextualized gospel. It is a false gospel. And if you believe in it, well, she says you're basically going to hell. Those are pretty strong words. And I think that is my problem with this video and others like it. It creates an us versus them mentality inside the body of Christ. And I think it does it for all the wrong reasons. Unfortunately, this us versus them permeates our culture. As a marketer and a product manager, I understand exactly why you do this. In a sea of muddled messages, you must take a strong stance if you want to build a following. And Allie has done just that. Her background as a conservative communicator has taught her well. I'm just not sure that Christianity should be played like that. Allie takes a strong stance that if you believe the quote-unquote prosperity gospel, you will not find Christ. And to some extent, she's probably correct. The prosperity gospel definitely has its problems. But first and foremost, it is not for the unsaved it cannot even make sense to the unsaved. Without the concept of original sin and John 3.16, for God so loved the world he gave his only son, it is impossible to reconcile the atrocities of the world and a loving God. Outside of this context, quite frankly, prosperity gospel, it's crazy talk. Even the label prosperity gospel has its issues because every preacher who preached that God wants good for you, without also including hellfire and brimstone in the same sermon, could be labeled the purveyor of the prosperity gospel. The cool thing about the Bible is it has a message for rich Christians in Dallas just as much as it does for people dying for their beliefs in China. God will use his word to speak differently to different people. He will put the accent on the hope of the afterlife for those who will never know peace in this world. And he will put the accent in different places for those who are not experiencing persecution. The problem arises when one speaks more broadly and attempts to put their accent on the word and claims the other accent is false. It is called the living word of God for a reason. The Bible says in Proverbs 21.2 that a person may think their own way is right, but the Lord weighs the heart. In other words, Allie thinks her point of view is correct, and from that point of view, she weighs the hearts of other men.
0: And the reason why I'm talking about it, the reason why I think it's relevant right now is one, because it is still increasingly popular. And two, I read a very interesting article in the Financial Times. It's an article titled, A Preacher for Trump's America, Joel Osteen and the Prosperity Gospel. Now, you can probably guess that this is a massively popular message. It's obviously a massively popular church, A uh, 16,000 in his congregation, Uh, He draws 7 million TV viewers a week and many more on satellite radio, podcasts, and online streaming. It is also, as you would Probably guess massively lucrative. Joel Osteen has a reported net worth of over 50 million. A recent book received a 13 million dollar advance, which is really incredible. That's just a tiny bit more than the advance that I got from my book. Uh, he and his family live in a 10.5 million dollar home with a variety of luxury cars. So he's doing pretty well. Uh, he doesn't any longer take his 200,000 dollar salary that. He used to get paid from the church. Uh, I'm guessing that he probably gets a lot of his money from books and other media, speaking engagements, things like that.
1: In Joel Olstein, Allie has found her foil. Everything someone says reveals a little bit about who they are and what they are really concerned about. It is true that Joel is rich by many standards. But is the problem the man Joel Olstein, or is it the prosperity gospel as a doctrine? There also appears to be a tad bit of jealousy. After all, Joel is doing exactly what Allie is doing, building an audience with an extreme point of view, and then writing books about it, all while amassing considerable wealth. While Allie does not have the $10 million house, the internet reports her worth is almost $1 million. Given that she only has 60,000 followers and Joel has 7 million, it would appear that they are extracting value from their audience at about the same rate. The subtext here is a bit more troublesome, and that is that the prosperity gospel is somehow easier to sell than Ali's version of the gospel. This is just not the case. It is actually much harder to tell a father who has lost his child to cancer that God is good and that he wants good for you than it is to say there will be suffering in this world and God never promised us an easy path. Trust me when I tell you that the first message is much harder to sell, and it takes a brave person to even try.
0: Doesn't sound like it's false to me. You don't really see a problem with Joel Osteen's ministry. Um, and I I understand that. I, I actually do. I was raised by entrepreneurs. My parents came from nothing. They uh, became very successful from working hard, using a lot of the principles that you hear someone like Joel Osteen talking about. And that is because he has good, practical business advice that if you apply – probably will help you in some way. It probably will help you to think positively. It probably will help you to do the things that he says to achieve your goals. But I didn't see a problem growing up with conflating this kind of up by your bootstraps, health and wealth thing with the Bible. I thought that that's kind of what we were supposed to do.
1: God is the author of good. If it is good advice, then it is of God. If it is bad advice, then it is not of God. There are many listeners who will disagree with me in this regard, but I challenge them to really think it through. In Matthew 7, 17-18, the Bible says, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. There is no such thing as conflating good advice with the Bible, because only good advice comes from the Bible. Everything that is not God is not good and thus will produce bad advice. Here again, the problem is in the subtext that somehow business advice is separate from spiritual advice. Advocating this point of view advocates for the disintegrated life. It allows us to compartmentalize our business lives, our home lives, and our spiritual lives. It is dangerous to make this differentiation because we will begin to see business as something different or less spiritual than church or prayer, but it is not. The Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And everything means everything. The work you do, the sports you play, the prayers you pray. These are all spiritual acts that flow from your heart. Uh,
0: God, they would say, is a good father. Therefore, like any good father it makes him happy to do good things for you, to do nice things for you, to give you abundant blessings. Uh, Like any good father, they say, he does not want you to suffer. He does not want you to go without. He does not want you to be miserable. He wants you to be happy and healthy. He wants you to live in abundance, to live in optimism, God wants you, they would say, to be successful in your job. He wants you to be rich. He wants to expand your territory and give you more influence. He wants you to be self-confident. He wants you to even be fit and to feel good and to feel good about yourself and your body.
1: I think the best way to think about these statements is to remove the condescending tone and invert them. God is a bad father. He is sad when you do good things. God wants you to suffer. God wants you to go without. He wants you to be miserable. He wants you to be sad and troubled by disease. He wants you to live in scarcity. God wants you to live in pessimism. He wants you to fail in your job. He wants you to be poor. He wants to reduce your territories. He wants you to have zero influence. He wants you to lack confidence. God wants you to be unhealthy and unfit. He wants you to feel bad and to feel bad about yourself and definitely feel bad about your body. This does not sound like a God, any kind of God I'd want to serve. In fact, it sounds like the opposite of God. It sounds very much like the devil himself.
0: Here's the problem that I had to realize. So that is not the gospel. Uh, God wants you, by his grace, to come to faith in Christ and to follow him. Period.
1: God wants you to come to faith in Christ to follow him. (laughs) This is an absolute statement of fact. But what does it mean? Luckily for us, Jesus was asked, and he responded in Mark twelve thirty 30-31. Jesus says, We are here to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and all, with all your strength. And we are to love your neighbor as yourself. According to Jesus, there is no commandment that is greater than these. However, this is far from a period. As you can see, there is a lot left up to us. What will your vocation be? How will you raise your children? What will your legacy be as your life is reflected in the the generations that will follow you? God did not create man to be saved. We must be saved because of original sin. But when Adam was created, he was created without sin. At that time, there was no need for the sacrifice of Jesus because there was no sin to be atoned for. Yet God still made man. Why? Why was man made? Salvation in Christ returns us to the relationship we had with God before the fall. We still live in a fallen world, and that introduces a lot of complications that Adam did not have to deal with. But the relationship between man, you and me, and God has been restored. In some sense, we have been returned to our original mandate. What is this mandate? Well, in Genesis 1.28, God tells us, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every every living creature that moves on the ground. We are meant to be rulers and creators. Just as Father delights in the creation of his children, so too God delights in our creativity and work. Why else did God give Adam the task of naming the animals? Every English Bible translation says the same thing in Genesis 20.19. It says he brought Them, the animals, to man to see what he would name them. God, the creator of the universe, was interested in his creation. He wanted to see what it would do. He wanted to see what Adam would name them. God is the same always, and since our restoration— he is interested to see what you do, provided you stay between the guide rails of had no, have no other God before him and love your neighbor as yourself.
0: Following him, it entails self-denial. It entails sacrifice. It entails sorrow. It entails discomfort. It entails hardship, always, in some way. Life does not become easier when we become Christians. In fact, in many ways, if not in every way, it becomes much harder.
1: According to Ali and others like her— Following Jesus entails sacrifice, self-denial, hardship, and sorrow. She goes on to add that in every way life becomes harder. To this, all I can say is, wow, what a bummer. Where is the joy the Bible speaks of? Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28-30, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't think anyone who understands suffering would want more of it. Yet the short-sighted live in sin because it is fun. And it is fun. But God knows the devastation that sin will ultimately produce. In a sense, there is self-denial. But if you have the proper perspective— It is not really denial at all. It is really trading the short term for the long term. Delayed gratification is what social psychologists identify as a sign of maturity. And denying sin is not suffering. It's just a sign of spiritual maturity. If you see this as suffering, you may not be as mature as you think yet. And for those people, practicing their Christian walk, even when it feels like suffering, is the only road to this level of maturity. Allie goes on to quote several scriptures that would appear to support a good God and a good father.
0: Uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven: for I know the plans I have for you. Uh, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. They might use a different version that says plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Uh, Psalm 84, 11, no good thing does he withhold uh, from those who uh, walk uprightly. Sorry, I lost my place for a second. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Matthew seven eleven. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above.
1: Well, those would seem to support the so-called prosperity gospel, but Allie, as we all should, takes the entire Bible into account and she identifies some scriptures that would seem to stand in contrast to these verses. Let's take them one by one. Luke
0: nine twenty three, And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me.
1: Man, this is a great verse. Not at all at odds with the idea of a good father. Perhaps the most common metaphor for those here in the U.S., home of the supersized meal, can be found in the idea of dieting. To lose weight and be healthy, you must deny yourself fake food engineered to make you love it. Think of this as sin. It is engineered to look good and to provide instant gratification, but it must be denied. This will be hard at first, but the more you fall in love with God, the more you love His people and His commandments. It will become easier dieters who are successful stop dieting and start living a new lifestyle or a new identity as the kind of person who does not eat junk. It is only when this identity takes root that the daily battles cease and you can have the kind of soul peace that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 11, 28-30. I call this moving from a head Christian to a heart Christian.
0: Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes. And even his own life. He cannot be my disciple.
1: Now this verse is interesting and seems to support the idea of suffering. But more work must be done. Because this seems also at odds with Ephesians 6.1 which says Christians are to honor their mother and father. When I'm faced with an apparent paradox, I like to pull out my trusty Bible commentary and my concordance. This verse is not a call to hate your life, your mother or your father, but instead it is a restating of the first two laws that summarize all the laws. Love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is not a statement about hate. It is a statement about love. My commentary puts it this way. Discipleship means a readiness to put the claims of Jesus above both family and self. And this is only a hardship if you still are a head-based Christian who is still trying to weigh the various philosophies of the world against those of God. If you have fallen deeply in love with God, you will love His commandments because they mean good for you, and you will love your mother and father. This may cause strife in your family or household. And you have to navigate that in a way that demonstrates the love of Jesus to those around you. If you go on beating up your family with the Bible, the chances that they come to Christ are almost zero. Instead, stick to the Word of God and love them. You are not Jesus, and your family, well, they're not the Pharisees. They are broken people in a lost and fallen world who are, by virtue of John 3.16, worthy of your love. In many ways, hating those who hate you because of your faith is easier than loving them as you love yourself. Please avoid this approach. Nowhere in the Bible are you called to hate another human. All verses in the Bible are meant to purify your heart and convict you of your own motives.
0: John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world.
1: (laughs) This is a particularly interesting verse. How can you have peace and tribulation? There's a nice metaphor that works here. Imagine you're on an airplane and you begin to experience significant turbulence. You know, the kind that silences the plane and returns the flight attendants back to the safety of their jump seats. The turbulence is absolutely real but for some, it does not even phase them, while others, they have this incredible look of horror on their face. After safely landing, some will recount the horrific flight, while others will say, well, there was just a bit of rough air. This is like the peace God provides. While there will still be turbulence, those who are experienced with God know this too shall pass, and they can have peace. This is not a call to suffering, God would prefer you have the peace of a veteran business traveler. He would prefer you find joy in the ride, even when it's a bit choppy. How do we know this? Because in Mark 4.38, Jesus' fellow passengers were experiencing the worst case of turbulence of their day. Their boat was about to be crushed in a horrific storm. Yet Jesus was inside the boat, sleeping, head on a pillow. Jesus was not quietly suffering, he was sleeping peacefully. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means we get to sleep through the storms.
0: 2 Corinthians 12.10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong.
1: You should be starting to see a pattern. If not, I'll offer another simple metaphor. A gifted athlete does not seek out the local 5K. He seeks to be tested. He seeks to know the kind of athlete he is. He seeks out the hardest races, the most difficult opponents, always increasing the complexity of the challenge. He ends the race with blisters, bloody toenails, and utterly exhausted, but with a smile, because he knows he has been tested. He knows he is a champion. Suffering is in the eye of the beholder.
0: In Philippians 3.10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his, Jesus' resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death.
1: Here again, this is not about seeking suffering. This is about being willing to suffer and experience hardships so we can emerge stronger and victorious. The goal is not to die, but to kill your earthly identity. You are born again, a new creation in Christ. You have to take the old identity that required you to manipulate others to get what you want, take that identity out back and shoot it. This requires you to rethink everything the world has taught you and take up the wisdom of Christ. Again, this is about who sits on the throne, not about suffering. Because the sooner you can do this, the sooner you can sleep through the turbulence. Let's take a look at a few more verses, but before I have to point out, often a very good reporter will say the phrase, emphasis is my own. Let's see if you can pick out Ali's emphasis and how that changes the focus of the verse from one of power to one of suffering. 2
0: Timothy eight. therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 1 Peter 3:14 But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake you will be blessed. 1 Peter 4:13 But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And Mark 8:36 For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul?
1: Failing to suffer does not equal losing your soul. Suffering, as we have seen, is a focus of temporary loss over long-term gain. If the joy of heaven and living in faith is not worth it, then what are we all doing?
0: Jesus says that part and parcel of following him is that we will have to give things up. Not just a few things, but everything that he asks us to. We aren't just denying parts of us. We are denying us. I am denying me. You are denying you. You are now to be everything and do everything that God asks you to do. This is no longer about expanding my kingdom. This is no longer about making myself great. This is not about me at all. This is about Jesus. My life is about him. Your life is about him. Your life is about making him great.
1: So, Allie notes, this is not about me at all. This is about Jesus. Your life is about making him great first based on your actions Jesus is no less or more great. God's glory is not like a stock that rises and falls based on investor sentiment. God is glory. He is the definition of glory. The whole Bible is about who sits on your throne. It is about making God the king of your heart. Make no mistake, from a biblical perspective, this is a question about you and your heart. If you think you are adding to God's glory, you are sadly mistaken. This makes you a little God, and you are not.
0: Jesus is not a genie to give you what you want. God is not Santa Claus.
1: Well, that is true. If what you want is different than what God wants for you, which is the best. If your heart aligns with his, then yes, he delights in giving you exactly what you want. In Matthew 6, 10, we are instructed to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is on heaven. If you had a genie and you could wish the perfect wish, trust me when I tell you, that would be it.
0: Joel Osteen said in his sermon that if God had a refrigerator, my picture would be on it, your picture would be on it. If God had a screensaver, our pictures would be the screensaver. No, (laughs) if God had a refrigerator, he would have a picture of himself on it. God does not worship us. God does not stand back and admire us. God does not need us. God is self-sufficient. God alone is worthy of admiration. God alone is worthy of our worship. It is not the other way around.
1: God does not need a picture of himself. That is the definition of narcissism. And most people, including God, consider that to be bad. I do not have a single picture of myself on my fridge. I have pictures of those I love. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, sounds like he loves us a lot. Some people don't know about this kind of love. And if a metaphor about a fridge helps them, then I'm all for it. So how then does Ali reconcile the suffering she sees as mandatory with the favorite verses of the so-called prosperity gospel?
0: Could it be, could it be that these things that are promised to us, This prosperity that is promised to us is eternal prosperity rather than temporary prosperity. Could it be that God guarantees uh, us eternal glory after this life, not worldly comfort?
1: She falls on a familiar trope. It must be eternal prosperity and not earthly prosperity. Eternal glory and not worldly comfort. But for her, what is not in question is the necessity of the reward. She also seems to believe that this reward is a guarantee. It would appear that the damnation she is convinced about is not about the reward, but about the timing of said reward. If you believe that this reward is immediate, then you're going to hell. If you believe that this reward is only after death, then you are holy and good to go. The ironies here are many, not the least of which is the concept of eternity itself. Eternity is forever, and it has already begun. The moment you accept Christ, you have entered into a kingdom that is eternal. Eternity does not just begin when you die. Dying is just a mile marker on the highway that is eternity. The rewards that matter are available to you now. The peace, the confidence to act boldly, to go forth and multiply, and to rule over the kingdom and influence God has entrusted to you. These are all things you can do right now.
0: So much of what I, on a daily basis, need to work on and get better at through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not speaking as someone who has come even close, come even close to perfecting this in my life. But I am telling you what the Bible says and what the Bible says about the things that we have and how we should learn through his wisdom and through his power to use them. That means we do not pursue being rich. We do not pursue being famous. We do not pursue having everything the world tells us that we need to be happy. We pursue Jesus, and we are glad with whatever he chooses to give us.
1: So I showed this video to my wife, and she made an astute observation. Perhaps this message is weighing on Allie's heart because it is what God is trying to speak to her. It is a message for her, for her walk. By the world standard, she is a very wealthy woman living in one of the wealthiest cities on earth. Perhaps this is the message she needs to hear. Living like that in a place like that, the devil may be using prosperity to lure her away from God. As a result, she is on guard when she sees a message of prosperity. She's on high alert, noting to herself that even if God took all this away, I must remember to still love him. But the Bible has to work for everyone. It has to work for the wealthy Christians in Dallas, and it has to work for those people in China fighting for their lives and their religions. As a result, God never changes his word, but he moves the accents around and he convicts the human heart. I've been poor. Look, at times my mom had to choose who ate in the family and who did not. Trust me when I say our prosperity was not sitting on the throne of our hearts. Our hunger was. And a message of hope, manna, daily provision was exactly what we needed. It was what many people who are living in places that are as close as we may ever get to hell on earth. For these people, a little promise of provision can go a long way. On a final note, you may be wondering, who should you listen to and what can be said? The answer is simple. Listen to the Bible. Say only the things that can be said in love. Jesus met a lot of sinners. He loved them all. He hated false teachers. But we are not Jesus, and only he can weigh a man's heart. Joel certainly leaves some things out of his message, but he is not the church. He is a church, and I will never endorse a man or a particular church. They are all fallible institutions, poorly executed by humans. I encourage everyone to listen and verify what's being said with the Bible and listen to what God is laying on your heart. God will place the accents where you need them. It is called the Living Word of God for a reason.